Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Mm, which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cat Disgusted, a podcast for veterinary technicians and the people and animals who love them. Each episode, we explore the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. I'm an RVT working in emergency and critical care. BTSCC. And this is what happens. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Cat Disgusted. Today is different, mainly because I'm recording from the bedroom. That's really, that's really the big difference. Uh, the reason being, uh, my partner Christine and I are paying some men thousands of dollars to dig a ditch around our house. Uh, the joys of adulting and homeownership. Uh, it, it's a, well, it's not really worth going into the details, but it's it's a drainage project. We have bad drainage um, around our house. And so these dudes are jackhammering for the next two days. It's pretty awesome. Do you hear it? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a low, I feel like today is not nearly as gnarly as when they were doing the concrete breaking up, but it's still just kind of like even far, like as far away from it as I am and like across the house. It's like this low grade kind of rumbly fart noise that just vibrates the walls uh, from where I am. So if you hear that, if you hear a low grade fart, it's not me. Might be Prince, might be the ditch diggers. We'll leave it at that. Uh, so today, I, f- I figured we cover one is a, a popular request that I've had for Stupid Breeds. And uh, the other is just, a, you know, I figured I'd throw a good story in there from the last, uh, the last couple weeks that I've been thinking about. So without further ado, let us begin with the very first feline edition of Stupid Breeds. How much is that dog in the window? <laughs> the one with the waggly tail. How much is that dog in the window? <laughs> I do hope that dog is for sale. I must <laughs> take a trip to California. I love doing that part. Um, so feline edition right this is new this should be good now why haven't we had a feline edition of stupid breeds before um the reality is there's not as many of them but in no way does that diminish uh the ferociousness and intensity of the cat fanciers of today uh cat fancy being the uh what would you say the be, being the the title of the group of people that are involved in cat breeding and cat shows cat fancy 
So these cat fanciers, they they are very much into their breeds, much like dog breed, dog breeders are. Uh, there is a version of like Westminster Dog Show, except on a kind of a smaller scale for cat shows. There's a really good uh, Netflix special that's about uh, a Canadian cat show circuit, and you kind of get the idea of of the <laughs> the level of detail that goes into bringing all these cats into the same room together. Now, a word on cat breed. Speaking of a bunch of cats being in the same room together, right? Cats are like little wild animals in our houses. They're only considered to be semi-domesticated. You know, they they came to us for convenience factor 9,000 years ago. That's that's when we started sharing our households with these little these little guys. And they really only came around because humans had started storing grain, which attracted vermin, which cats love. And so cats would get close to us and close to each other by uh, basically hunting vermin around grain stores. Now, I say each other because cats are generally solitary creatures. Uh, Unlike packs of wolves, you have cats that live by themselves, except when they're breeding. That's really the only time that they're close to each other, with the exception of a pride of lions. That's the one exception to the rule. I feel like that's a whole other episode. Those guys are great. But that being said, they were bred... kind of inadvertently just because they were around each other. But also I think, you know, humans probably had something to, I would think something to do with it with these guys that, that were more docile. They wanted to be closer to people. And so those are the types of domestic short hairs, domestic cats that ended up perpetuating their existence near humans. Also, let's be real here. We like animals that are doing a job for us. And these cats, by eating all the rats and mice and vermin around the grain stores, they're doing a job. Uh, So it wasn't a bad thing to have those guys keeping down that population around our food sources. Now, anybody who's tried to train a cat will know that they are more difficult to train than dogs. They don't have that same wanting to please you reward drive. They are reward driven. So it is possible to train cats, but it's a much harder task. And I think that that's part of why they kind of had a circumstantial coexistence with us. Uh, we haven't been able to to train them as easily to do as many jobs as all the various, various uh, breeds of dogs are able to do. Now, there is some tracing of genomes that happened. The first one, the first cat genome that was started, I love this, was sequenced um, from an Abyssinian that was named Cinnamon. Now, Cinnamon had a degenerative eye condition, and that's why they were tracing back her lineage to make sh- to kind of see what gene that was that was passing on that trait. But now what we know from starting there and, uh, and further genome research that we've done with cats is that they share a huge amount of their genes with wild cats. Uh, they have the same prey drive. They have the same genes encoded for behaviors like reward seeking, uh, for memory, for fear. Those are all things that our little domestic cats share with the wild kitty populations that are out there. Now, the docility that we talk about, that's what brings them into our lives. And so the reward-seeking behavior that they have, that's like the cat coming to the, to the vermin in your grain store is like the cat meowing and pawing you in the face for food in the morning. Same thing. Now, I thought I would start uh, the feline stupid breeds with perhaps the most stupid of the breeds. Oh, God, here come, the, here come angry emails from Cat Fancy Incorporated. 
But I figured I figured I'd, I'd do uh, one of the most extreme and most recognizable, which is the Persian. Now, the Persian cat breed is one of the most unwild <laughs> breeds of cats that we have. Um, like dogs, there is this interesting thing where the more wild a cat looks, the more its behavior is truly wild. Like there's another type of cat called a Bengal, which has these like leopard spots. They're gorgeous, but Lord have mercy on you if one comes into your veterinary hospital and you have to like do things to it because Kitty does not want it. They are one of the more wild type breeds. Now the Persian, these are the guys that have the big bug eyes and the super squishy face. Uh, they've got the flat face. They look like, like kind of like a bulldog skull of cats basically. And super, super floofy. Now they're not all super floofy. That does this, this category of Persian encompasses a couple different ones. There's also, uh, based on their color, a Himalayan. And then there's also, based on the length of their hair, the exotic short hair. And But they're both recognizable because they've got this squishy, squishy face and the buggy, buggy eyes. Kind of wall-eyed, <laughs> buggy eyes. So these cats have been around for over 100 years. And we can blame some of their popularity on the royal family of England, like we can blame the popularity of corgis. Um, the royal family kept them in the late 1800s. And specifically, this color, these blue Persians, they were very, very popular. And so it, they became popular uh, around England for that reason. Now, the very first, the first cat show, dun, 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 dun in Britain was in 1871, and that's the first place that we saw these Persian cats. Now, they came, uh, they, they were in existence for long before that. Now, they're called Persians, right? So they think that the first place that they came from was Iran, and they came from Iran to Italy and to France, and that's where they were uh, initially. Maybe as early as like the mid-1600s, like 1620 is a date that I ran into on, on breeding sites, and then also this book that I've had forever about cat breeds. Both of them cited that it could have been that early that they were around. Uh, and they could have been before then in the Middle East, right? So they were around for a cool minute before the royal family uh, swiped them up during that cat show in 1871. Now, it is worth mentioning that uh, cat breeders, well, and especially the Persian cat breeders, they are purists, right? So a lot of cat breed differentiation is based on color. So the Persians tend to be solid, solid colors. Like, and now we're going to get into, now we're going to get into the details, right? So they have all kinds of words for it. Smoke, reds, tipped, silvers. It can take generations to kind of get where those colors need to be. Now, the 60s brought the horror of exotic short hairs. And I say the horror of it because there's like big controversy with the Persian breeding community. God forbid they should vary from the perfection of their big floofs and have these uh, short haired versions of the Persians. Now, I think these guys are freaking adorable, dude. They've got these like little round little heads, but their hair is short. And so you can really kind of see their body type um, and the body type of these Persians. Like you can't usually see it when they've got the floof, but they're kind of these stocky little square kitties. They've got relatively short legs usually, and they've got short little ears, these round little heads. 
So I think when the exotic short hair is around, I think you can really kind of see that body conformation, which I think is adorable. Now, another uh, big controversy was the white spotting gene, which meant that there could be white spots in places. Then you got like colors like the cameo, which look more like a calico. The variant of the Himalayan, which has uh, pointed coloring like a Siamese, the reason why they had a different name for it was because this coloring was brought on by breeding these Persians with Siamese cats, which is like a huge breaking up the line. Oh, hell no. In Persian breeding world. So they're like, fine, you can have your Siamese pointed color, but we're going to call it something else. We're going to call it a Himalayan. So there's show categories for all three of those. I'm kind of going to stick to uh, the, just calling them generally Persians. Cause where we're going to next is the health problems that these guys all have. And really they all kind of have the same problems cause they're all inbred so intensely to get all these specifics. Now that's not dissimilar to dogs, but, um, because there are less of them, like there's just less numbers in the population of, specific cat breeds, I feel like the inbreeding can get really bad really fast. So like the bulldog, we managed to really screw up the anatomy of these cats. The drawings that they have of these uh, cats that came from Iran, they've got longer faces, they've got larger ears, their legs are longer, um, their eyes are smaller, they're more closely set. So now the breed standard has gotten so extreme that their eyes are like super far apart. They look kind of like frogs where it looks like, you know, they've got this big downturned mouth and then an eyeball on either side of the corner of their mouth. They've got this big domey head. Uh, the way that their bite conformation is, is they've got this big underbite sometimes, which is not necessarily what the show judges want to see, because it does say that they want their face to have a sweet countenance rather than like angry, which is funny because the first Persian cat that I really ever met and hung out with belonged to my very first piano teacher. And it was named grandma because it looked like this. <laughs> pissed off ugly grandma. Now at this juncture, I feel like it's worth reading out of my uh, cat breed book that I have that, that I've had forever about some of the descriptions of, um, of these ideal breed characteristics. So hang on, I'm just going to grab this book. Here we go. Okay. So I've had this book forever and I feel like I've kind of flipped through it to look at the pictures, but you know, reading the text of it, I'm just, I'm always entertained. So here we go. So, uh, oh good. So this is a little bit of review as to where we are, right? The Persian is a non-pointed long-haired cat. The exotic short hair is a short-haired Persian in type. The Himalayan is a pointed Persian. I hope that was clear before, but just for review. Now, let me go to some of these uh, descriptions here. Here we go. There should be a sweet expression to the face. This is very important as the cat should be pleasant to look at, never mean or frowning in appearance. <laughs> Right. The neck should provide adequate support for the massive head and should be short, thick, well-muscled, and powerful. Right. And this is the white spotting gene thing. The white spotting gene brought about a marriage between white and all the rest of the Persian colors and patterns. This was not without great resistance from some breeders who did not want anything to do with the white spotting gene and fought vigorously to prevent the, quote, and whites, end quote, from gaining championship status, believing that the gene would ruin their bloodlines. <laughs> Yeah, the bloodlines. So you can see how they've just really over time just inbred these things into a 
very unwild semi-domesticated creature that lives in your house. So because this is a veterinary technician podcast, we have to touch on the health problems from these kitties that uh, I encounter frequently. Well, it's funny to say frequently because, you know, I honestly feel like we don't see a lot of these cats in the hospital. Uh, when we do, it's a big deal because everybody's got to be like, oh my God, the squishy face. I want to squish it. So they, and they always have weird problems. Like there's always some oddball thing that's going on with these kitties whenever they come through emergency. And I don't know if it's because there's just not a lot of them in the Bay area or because like we're, we're not really we're not really, we're really a rescue focused area, um, in in the Bay. And I I think that these cats generally cost a lot of money to have. And they, these are the ones that like you can shop breeders in Florida online and have one shipped to your house for like, you know, upwards of a thousand dollars. I mean, these, these kittens from these Persian breeders, I mean, they can run you like 1500 to $2,000, depending on what they look like. Now, some of the problems that they encounter, a big one is polycystic kidney disease. And this is just from inbreeding. This is just like, they didn't weed out the crap gene that gives this kidney disease problem. What happens is with polycystic, and you can kind of tell by the word poly being many and cystic being cysts, um, these fluid filled cysts will grow in the kidneys and they take up all the space that would normally be for functional kidney tissue and they reduce the renal function. So that tends to develop in these kitties relatively early in their life. I mean, I say early, but like, you know, seven or eight years, but we see cats that live up to 20 years old. So in that case, it's relatively early for them to go into kidney failure. Now they need, I keep referring to it as the floof. They do need a lot of grooming. So a lot of times the problems come from just mats in their hair And they can get crazy. One cat that I remember from my very first job was a cat that had been neglected living under a bed and it was a big fluffy Persian and the cat's hair had literally matted into like a turtle shell on its back. I've never seen the likes of it before or since. So we were able to clip it off with clippers, but it was like, a Trump toupee. It was crazy. You could have worn it as a hat, this like turtle shell of matte hair. So that can be a real issue. And these cat fanciers who show these Persians, that is so much of what they do. They are like fluffing them up with these special brushes. They are like trimming their little eyelashes. They're cleaning the little folds in their little frowny face. They're using coffee filters as like, they put a coffee filter like on their face to like hold the hair back while they feed it and uh, give it water, like, you know, their face is like through the center of the coffee filter. It's crazy. So grooming, that's a thing. Uh, I think I've mentioned before that there's no such thing as a cat dystocia. So like a cat that has trouble giving birth, not really a thing. Like cats are really, really good at it, hence feral cat problems in the world. They don't normally need a lot of uh, care or supervision. Like they just do their thing and it's fine. They just pop out them kittens. Well, way to go, humans. We screwed that up. So the Persians, because they have this big, giant, domey head, they literally can't get the kittens out through the birth canal because they're giving birth to these, like, dome head kittens. And so Persians are often born via C-section. There's no safe way for them to get the kittens out otherwise. 
Uh, their eyeballs will definitely cause them a problem. In fact, I feel like the older Persians that I've seen, they all have eye problems. And it's because they're like these giant buggy eyes that are like way far apart on their head and their eyelids can't even like close over them properly. One of the things that they have a problem with is a, is a type of syndrome called entropion, which means that the eyeball is getting scratched by its own eyelashes. Like the eyelashes tend to grow inwards and then just scrape up the cornea, which is a horrifying thing. They can also have, they can have problems with both excessive tear production and not enough uh, tear production. And the tears can, if they're, if it's excessive, they can stain along those folds where their little snubby little nose is and down around their mouth. And they can get skin infections from where those tears are just sitting in them, like making a little moist, moist party for bacteria in there. So a lot of Persian care is taking care of their eyes and wiping the skin around them. If they don't make enough tears, then you have to put drops in them. Depending on what the condition is, they can be several problems with that. Like keratoconjunctivitis means that they have an immune problem where they're not, they're, they're destroying their own ability to make tears. So they have a certain kind of drop for that. So eyeballs are a thing. Uh, I mentioned before the malocclusion of their jaw. So like bulldogs, they can have this big underbite and they're, they're, the way that their jaw gets put together is just not right. And sometimes you'll see these pictures of these kittens. You'll be like, oh my God, how cute their tongue's sticking out. Well, the reason why that is is because their tongue literally can't fit in their head. Like their jaw is so short and so malformed that they either have their mouth hanging open all the time. That's something that you see. Or their tongue just falls out because they don't have enough like bonage to hold it in there. There's even a type of, uh, there's even kibble companies that will cater to Persian breeders. So like they'll have a Persian size kibble, which I guess is small so that they can fit it in their mouth easier. I'm like, Oh my God, that's, we're going deep. We're going deep in cat fancy world. Now that we're making kibble for deformed cat heads. So that, that can be a big problem with them. If they, especially if they get any kind of dental disease, and then you're talking about doing anesthesia on these cats and intubating these cats. I've, oh God, you know, I think I've really only done it once and it's weird. Like a bulldog, it's just getting into that mouth and getting their mouth open. It's, it, it's odd. So it's a risk. Uh, they do have some heart disease that they deal with. Uh, I feel like the last person that I saw through emergency actually was a patient of cardiologies and they will most likely develop a condition called uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which means that they build up a lot of muscle around the ventricles of their heart. And then they literally can't, the, the ventricles, which are the, the chambers of your heart that are the strongest and are in charge of pumping blood around your body, uh, the oxygenated blood around your body, there's not enough space in those ventricles because they get so thickened with all this extra tissue um, and your atrium get really dilated on top and then you can get clots in your atrium. So it cascade of problems. Uh, but that that is also something that you see in these cats that is prevalent because they've been inbred so intensely. Now, I will say a word about uh, this, these, the, a variant on these Persian breeds that's begun to happen in the last like 20 years. They now are making teacup varieties or in like cat fancy world, they call it pixie varieties, which means that they're making them very, very small. So now they're like the, they're miniaturizing these Persian cats. Okay. Uh, no, 
Like, I put my foot down. Like, no, this is a terrible idea. Like, they already are, like, their bodies are already not put together right, and then you're going to miniaturize it? I mean, their brain isn't going to have room to fit in their heads. Their legs are going to be all screwed up and kinkied up because they're going to be too short. Let's just not. Like, let's just not. Like, if you want, like, a little tiny fuzzy thing, like, you can get a beanie baby. It's fine. It takes way less way less worry to take care of, of a small inanimate object rather than teacup size this cat. There was a there's a miniature bulldog thing that is happening as well and I've actually met one of those dogs before and it was hella sad. Like that dog was not right. Dogs should not come in squares. Okay. I'm just gonna like it was, it was like it was like a cube. And I think the same for the Persian kitties. Like let's not pixie the Persian because I feel like it's just going to look like a tribble by the time that we're done with it with like an eyeball on either side of it like a fish just no now let us leave the world of cat fancy and descend into emergency medicine where (laughs) sometimes the two meet anyway (laughs) this will be a different story so I wanted to tell the story of the two puppies and the xylitol gum so as I've mentioned before on this podcast for those of you who have been with me from the beginnings uh, there is a type of fake sugar in sugarless gum that can be really problematic for dogs Um, we'll just do a little bit of review so it's called xylitol and what this is, it's a, it's a fake sugar that tricks dogs' bodies into, into dumping out a huge amount of insulin when they eat it. Now, because it's a fake sugar, the insulin that their body is triggered to release doesn't have any real sugar to process. And so they can become very, very hypoglycemic. Their blood sugar can drop really, really, really low, and that can cause scary emergency events to happen. They can be unconscious. They can have seizures. Uh, so when a dog eats sugarless gum, it can be a real problem. This particular instance was a family that had a lot going on. So we had, we got a phone call from this family that had two dogs that had gotten into the owner's purse and had eaten uh, what they thought was three pieces of sugarless gum. Now, lucky for these dogs, it was not a crazy bad type of sugarless gum. Believe it or not, like different types of brands will have different amounts of xylitol in them that can be better or worse. And so it ended up that they were kind of like a mid-range one, so it wasn't super, super bad. Orbits apparently is super, super bad. And then Trident is like, mm, maybe not so bad. So these dogs came in uh, at the same time because they weren't sure which one was responsible. Now, they were both relatively young. They were these little poodly things, these little brownish little doodly poodly. I think cockapoos is probably what you would call them, but small. And they were with this family that had two very young children. Like, I'm going to age these girls at like maybe three and five. So in they come, here are these two little tiny puppy dogs just bouncing off the wall, bouncing all around, and these two baby girls also bouncing off the walls. Because it's like, you know, it's like 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night. Really, it's their bedtime, but here they are in pet emergency. So what we did is we had we took each dog and we induced emesis in each dog so that we could bring up the gum. They had done it recently, so it was likely that we were going to be able to, to bring up the pieces of gum. Now, this xylitol does get absorbed very, very quickly. So that, I mean, I always think the emesis is kind of like... Well, let's do it because we can. But, you know, the damage is really done by the time that they've ingested that gum, even if it is only like 20, 30 minutes, which is what this was. 
So they had already told me, we think it's this one. The younger one is trouble. So we induced emesis on her first and then on her older brother. Now these dogs, they thought they were at a party. They were having a grand old time, bouncing all around, bouncy, 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 bouncy. Uh, Definitely they were right that the younger one was the one that was the culprit because that dog brought up uh, this, this hunk of this white white lump of gum <laughs> which we were able to tell right away boom in the middle of the barf that that was indeed the gum that was missing now while this is going on these this poor family has to be put in an exam room so the doctor can come talk to them and the girls are just like fascinated by this whole process right they're like are you the doctor no I'm not the doctor I'm one of the nurses oh nurse for doggies yes nurse for doggies so I tried to keep them entertained you know, one of them was in this little ballet outfit like she had little soft like little soft shoes on and a leotard and she was doing little pirouettes on the way to the exam room and her older sister had her mom's phone which was playing some kind of like you know game on it that was beeping so while we made the dogs barf I gave them some like exam gloves that I'd like blown up like balloons I'm like here you go play with those for a second which they you know I think that lasted like maybe 35 45 seconds so by the time I came in to speak with this family about uh what which dog had brought up the gum I was getting close to the exam room door and what I hear is like beatings basically <laughs> happening. They're like, get off your sister. Put that thing down. I told you what, what did I tell you? To? I'm like, oh God. And I look through the little like slat window thing in the door. And these parents are like standing over these girls that are on top of each other, rolling around the exam room floor. I'm like, oh God. So I'm all ding, ding, ding. And everybody, all the heads turn. Look at the door. I'm like, hello, I've come to talk with you about your doggies. And I'm a very good distraction, which is good because the girls paid attention to me for like the five minutes that it took me to talk to the parents. Now, it's recommended that when these dogs ingest this toxin that they stay in the hospital and have their blood glucose monitored. And so we presented them cost estimates for both of those dogs to stay. Now, that is not cheap to do. And no surprise, this family chose to monitor these dogs at home rather than keep them in the hospital. Not necessarily the end of the world because these dogs, like the children, are bouncing off the walls happy. So they do not present any signs of hypoglycemia at all, which is good. Uh, We also checked their blood glucose, which was normal. So that is also good. So they begged me that they could take these children home while we dealt with the dogs to give them some subcutaneous fluids, uh, to give them an injection to stop the nausea. So I was like, yes, please, yes. Totally, I understand. Take these girls home. So they kind of, the dad dragged these two girls, you know, like out the lobby door uh, so that they could go home, go to bed, settle down. And mom went with him so that she kind of, man, you know, man-to-man, man-to-man defense out there putting the kids to bed. We got the dogs organized. We got all of their release instructions done. Uh, mom came back to the hospital and she's in the lobby and I came up there to talk with her about releasing these dogs and like what to watch for, for low blood glucose. And she's like, Hey, I, I, I did something while I was at home. You did. Okay, sure. Well, I, I found the, the gum and I just wanted to make sure that all of it came up, you know, when you made them barf. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I think we got it all, but okay. But I just want to make sure. So what I did was I took three pieces of the gum and I put it in my mouth and I like chewed it up for a couple minutes. And then here, wait, it's in my purse. And she's like, scruffle, scruffle, scruffle in her purse. I put it in this baggie. Is this what came up out of the dog? And she holds up this little plastic Ziploc baggie with this like hunk 
of slightly slimy chewed up gum in this baggie. I'm was like, yeah, yes, yes, ma'am. Yes. That, that is a very good comparison of what came up out of your dog what you have brought me there. She's like, oh, good. Because I just want to like make sure that that was like the same thing that you saw. I'm like, yes, the gum that you're showing me that came out of your own mouth pre-chewed is identical to the gum that came out of your dog's stomach this evening. (laughs) All right, have a nice night. (laughs) So off they went. And she put the gum back in her purse, by the way. She She put it back in there, you know, I guess for safekeeping. Perhaps to chew later. Uh, the dogs did great. They came in the next day to have their glucose checked to make sure everything was fine. Uh, they did fabulously. The girls did not come the second time around so that they didn't have to wrestle on the floor of the exam room. But a happy ending. Everybody was fine. Note to pet owners out there, let's just uh, keep the gum away from the dog so that you don't have to be in an emergency room at 11 o'clock at night showing a veterinary technician three hunks of nasty slimy gum that came out of your own mouth for cross comparison. Thank you. so much ladies and gentlemen for surviving another episode of cat disgusted uh thank you for tuning in as always uh, we'll be sure to bring you more stupid breeds feline styly uh we're gonna go ahead and let janet jackson take from here y'all Woo!